All right, well, ladies and gentlemen, many thanks for coming to this lecture. Uh, my name is Professor Alan Sked. I'm a historian in the Department of International History. Uh, and it's my great pleasure tonight to introduce our guest speaker from the United States, Cullen Murphy, uh, who's an editor with Vanity Fair. Uh, and Cullen is the author of a number of books. Uh, I haven't the privilege of reading them all, but he's written on the history of women. He's written uh, an interesting book, which I'm hoping to read soon, on the present state of America, comparing it to ancient Rome. Uh, but tonight, uh, he's going to talk uh, about his latest book, which you can buy, which I'm sure you'll want to buy after his talk, outside. It's called God's Jury, the Inquisition and the Making of the Modern World. Uh, you can buy that outside, and if you come in after buying it, Cullen has very kindly said he will sign your copy for you, so you can come back and have a signed copy. Uh, he's talking about God's jury and the making of the modern world. If you want to know the hashtag uh, for Twitter and other users, it's LSC Inquisition. Uh, we are hoping that a podcast will be made of this lecture tonight. Uh, we say hope because, uh, given technical difficulties, it's not always 100% certain that these things will work out, but we do hope that there will be a podcast of tonight's uh, talk. Anyway, uh, as I say, Cullen works for Vanity Fair, which is one of my favourite journals. Um, it's uh, a, a magazine, I don't know if you're aware, you should be aware of Vanity Fair if you're interested in uh, American and world affairs. It's a wonderful magazine, he's one of the editorial staff. Uh, but as I say, apart from that, he also writes his own books. And tonight he will talk about the Spanish Inquisition, but it's not just about the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, the book shows how the, the methods used by the Spanish Inquisition uh, have been adopted by other uh, not very nice regimes and uh, still play a part in the making of the modern world. So without any ado, it gives me great pleasure to invite Cullen to speak. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Alan, and um, and good evening to all of you. It's a, it's a uh, real pleasure to be here at LSE. I've, I've walked. We were just talking a little bit uh, beforehand, and I've, I've walked through LSE probably 20 times. This is, a, this is the first time I've actually been through a doorway and. Um, and into the school. Anyway, it's, it's wonderful to be here, and it's wonderful also to be back in London, where actually a good bit of uh, research for this, this book was done, and I'll be coming to that, uh, that directly. And I've got some images to go with uh, my talk this evening. Um, so I'll, I want to uh, speak tonight about the Inquisition, which I think, as, as, as you know, was a long-term effort by the Catholic Church to deal with what it perceived to be its enemies, really by whatever means available and necessary. It started in the Middle Ages, and the very word Inquisition makes us think of the word medieval. But my argument is that we should think of it as, in some ways, a modern institution, maybe even a living one and not an institution whose methods are only about religion. The coat of arms behind me is the symbol of one of the Inquisitions. There, there were many of them. Specifically, it's the Spanish Inquisition. 
Now, this is the Inquisition we've all heard of, and yet, as Monty Python would have it, with Michael Palin and his friends bursting through the doors, it's the Inquisition that, for some reason, we never expect. The Spanish Inquisition began in the late 1400s under Ferdinand and Isabella, but I'd like to turn the clock back even further to a man named Bernard Guy. Now, he was a papal inquisitor, active during the very first of the Inquisitions. Here he is. Now, this picture, of course, was taken a little later. It's F. Murray Abraham, who played Bernard Guy in the movie The Name of the Rose. But Guy was a real person. And he left behind a manuscript that he called the Book of Sentences. It was a record of his entire career. The people he interrogated, the judgments he rendered, the sermons he pronounced at the sentencing. The manuscript is preserved today at the British Library. I've looked at it there, poured through its pages, seen the little black crosses in the margins that indicate when a particular punishment has been meted out. It's a haunting document, and I'll come back to it at the end because there's a story about how it came to be at the British Library, a story that offers us some guidance, I think, across the centuries. But for getting a feel of the Inquisition in practice, there's really nothing quite like Bernard Guy's Book of Sentences. You get a sense of inquisitors moving from town to town, questioning witnesses, trolling for denunciations, applying torture in some cases, and making a documentary record that itself becomes a tool for others to use. His book is configured in such a way that it becomes almost a search engine on parchment. And this gets to the heart of what I mean when I say that we need to think of the Inquisition not as something medieval, safely locked away in the past, but as something modern. The Inquisition was fed by religious hatred and, and intolerance, sure, but it also needed something else in order to last for centuries, to remain in place for generation after generation. It needed modern tools. It needed to have a bureaucracy. It needed record keeping. It needed to be able to find information after it was written down. It needed trained personnel, what today we might even call technocrats. It needed instruction manuals. It needed a science of interrogation. It needed mechanisms of enforcing censorship. It needed techniques of surveillance. A thousand years ago, these tools did not really exist in the church or in any, go any other government. And, re and remember, the church at the time was, in many ways, a government. In the late Middle Ages, we start to see them develop. They make the Inquisition possible. And today, we accept all these tools as a fact of life. On every one of these fronts, we are far advanced and advancing further at a rapid clip. These tools have been thrown into sharp relief by the events of the past decade after 9-11. So when we look today at the Inquisition, we are not looking at a throwback. We are looking at a harbinger. Now, let me rewind briefly just for uh, a bit of history. We're all familiar with scenes like this one. The painting depicts a great auto-da-fe or act of faith. 
Now, these were the ceremonial moments when the people convicted by the Inquisition would be paraded in public wearing penitential garb. If the people sentenced were already dead, their bodies would be exhumed and paraded on carts. The spectators might include nobles and diplomats. Those condemned to die would be led outside and burned at the stake. If mercy was to be shown, a bag of gunpowder, a saccus pulverarius, might be hung around the neck so that the end came more quickly. But these big, scenic, kind of disnified auto da fes took centuries to develop. The first inquisitions were far more modest. I mentioned a few moments ago that there were many inquisitions. They start in the 13th century when the pope deputizes a special group of clerics, mainly Dominican priests, to go into southern France and other areas that had become breeding grounds of heresy, particularly of the heretics known as Cathars. This is the so-called medieval inquisition. The inquisitors would go into a locale, announce their arrival, begin putting people under interrogation and maybe torture. Interrogation, of course, is where the Inquisition gets its name, and hand down judgments. The people being charged generally didn't know the charges against them and didn't know who the witnesses were. Historians don't have firm numbers, but overall, maybe 2% of those who came before an Inquisition tribunal were burned at the stake. Many thousands of people. Some heretics took up arms. Hundreds were eventually trapped in this place, Montségur, in the foothills of the Pyrenees. Climb up through those trees and you may come across rounded boulders shot from catapults. After a long siege, the Cathars eventually gave up and 200 of them were burned at the stake at the base of the mountain. The inquisitors documented everything about their work. Here's a typical transcription of an expense account, right down to the cost of the rope. The work of the medieval inquisition lasted for about a century. It was very decentralized and very successful. Have you ever met a Cathar? It's an old Catholic joke. Um, and yet, a couple of days ago, when I was talking about this book in Washington, a man came up to me afterwards and said, I'm a Cathar. So there was at least one who escaped. But as one historian writes, the medieval inquisition came to an end because of a shortage of combustible material. A second stage in the history of the Inquisition, beginning in 1480, is the Inquisition no one ever expects, the Spanish Inquisition, which was followed closely by the Portuguese Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition was directed at the outset by this man, Tomás de Torquemada, a zealous Dominican who wore hair shirts under his habit and traveled everywhere with armed guards with good reason. Although the Pope gave his permission to launch it, it was always under the direct control of the Spanish crown. Church and state were indistinguishable. The main targets of the Spanish Inquisition were Jews, though Muslims were targeted too. Anti-Semitic fervor had been a fact of life in Spain for more than a century, leading to forced conversions and the confinement of Jews to ghettos. The pretext for the Inquisition was that some of those converted Jews were Judaizing, that is, returning to Judaism. 
In the first decade and a half of the Spanish Inquisition, some 2,000 people were burned at the stake. In this room, Ferdinand and Isabella affixed their signatures to a document that spelled catastrophe for tens of thousands of Jews. The room is the hall of the ambassadors at the Alhambra in Granada, and the year was 1492. Ferdinand and Isabella had just kicked out the last Muslim sultan and taken over his palace. A few weeks after that, they gave Columbus their blessing for his voyages. And a few weeks after that, they signed the Edict of Expulsion, ordering all unconverted Jews out of Spain. Columbus, in the harbor waiting to sail on his own voyage, made a note in his logbook as he watched the ships filled with Jews leaving Spain. The Spanish Inquisition, together with the Portuguese Inquisition, would survive into the early 19th century. Here's a rendition by Goya of an Inquisition tribunal from that period, early 19th century. Goya had a very personal stake in the matter. He had himself become an Inquisition target and was called in for questioning because of his painting of an unclothed reclining woman, a painting with no religious or mythological overtones, which would have made it okay, just a nude woman. It has been called by one art historian the first totally profane life-size female nude in Western art. Despite interrogation by the Inquisition, Goya never revealed who the woman was. But as a memento of his interrogation, he left behind dozens of depictions of the inquisitorial process like that one. So here's a key fact about the Inquisitions in Iberia. They went global. Spain and Portugal became empires, and the Inquisition followed the flag. This is the coat of arms of the Portuguese Inquisition. It's the coat of arms from Goa in India. The Spanish or Portuguese Inquisition spread to the Philippines, Macau, Angola, Mozambique, Brazil, Peru, Mexico. There was Inquisition activity in what is now New Mexico in the United States. And as a result of it, eight men were beheaded in the plaza of Santa Fe, something the tourist board rarely mentions. The last official act of the Inquisition in California was to try to prohibit a particular dance, the waltz. A third stage of the Inquisition is what's called the Roman Inquisition, which was launched in 1542 mainly to combat Protestantism. But it also had its eye on Jews, scientists, freethinkers, and the sort of person we today would call public intellectuals. The Roman Inquisition was very centralized and run directly from the Vatican. Its headquarters is the trapezoidal building with the red dot right towards the bottom of the screen underneath the, um, the southern wing of Bernini's colonnade. And it dates to the mid-16th century. The work on this building was deemed so important that the Pope halted work on St. Peter's and diverted all the stonecutters and masons to finish the Inquisition's palazzo. So this is what the building looked like originally. It held prison cells until the 1920s, when it was finally remodeled. Today, it's the headquarters of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which is still the arm of the church responsible for defining orthodoxy and enforcing discipline 
the church's theological watchdog. Keeping the congregation's office in the old Inquisition Palazzo has to be one of the most ill-considered marketing moves of all time. The Roman Inquisition is the one that burned the cranky cosmologist Giordano Bruno at the stake. It's the one that created the Index of Forbidden Books. And it's the one that put Galileo on trial. Galileo, of course, had the last laugh in more ways than one. There's a small part of Galileo that isn't buried at Santa Croce in Florence. It's on display at the nearby Museo Galileo. And appropriately enough, it's a middle finger. The archives of the Roman Inquisition, 300 years worth, are preserved to this day at the Palazzo. And most of them were open to scholars about a decade ago. One section holds maps of all the ghettos that Jews were confined to in Italian cities. Here's a map from the archives of the, here's a map from the archives of the Rome ghetto. It's the area shaded in yellow and still the site where Rome's great synagogue can be found. The Roman Inquisition effectively came to an end in 1870 when the Papal States were absorbed into a unified Italy. Pope Pius IX, the man who proclaimed papal infallibility, took refuge in the Vatican. There seems to be some kind of a rule in art history that the most glorious depictions of powerful people are commissioned shortly before their downfall. Here is Pius IX not long before the walls of Rome were breached and Italian troops poured in. The Roman Inquisition was not formally abolished until 1908. And even then, as Vatican observers today will tell you, what was really changed was just the name. In the course of three decades of writing about religion and about the church, I have gotten to know many theologians who have been called to Rome, questioned intensively, and had their careers deflected, and sometimes their voices silenced. So now let's come back to the argument about why we should think of the Inquisition as modern. It's one thing to have an outbreak of bloody repression motivated by fear and hatred. That's been happening for millennia. It's quite another to impose repression over a period of decades or centuries. There's a reason why the Inquisition arises when it does and doesn't arise much earlier. It arises when it does because only then is the Western world beginning to develop certain powerful organizing tools. Let's go back to Bernard Guy. Here's one of the opening pages from his book of sentences. Guy has done something relatively new here. He has listed every person he interrogated by town, and then after each name he notes where in this book or in some other volume you can get more information about that particular individual. In a world where people stayed close to home and where heresy had strong local roots, this form of indexing was very effective. And Guy was not alone in doing this. For inquisitors, creating easily searchable documents was routine. If someone had come before a tribunal in, say, Toulouse in 1300, and then came before another tribunal in Carcassonne 30 years later, the inquisitors in Carcassonne would know all about the Inquisition in Toulouse. 
This ability to search documents seems pretty basic to us. It was a revolution at the time. The inability to find information in archives had been a huge liability. There was a famous moment when uh, England's King Edward I um, knew, he just knew, that he had a document in the archives somewhere proving his overlordship of Scotland. And on two occasions, he sent his secretaries into the archives to find it, and they never did. So the ability to search is one new tool. A second is information gathering itself, amassing a storehouse of data. Repressive regimes are record-keeping regimes. Just visit the old archives in Moscow or Berlin. During the Inquisition, information gathering was sometimes done by surveillance. The Spanish Inquisition had a group of local agents known as familiars who kept watch on their neighborhoods. At one point in Valencia, there was one familiar for every 42 households. Sometimes the inquisitors cast their net very widely. There's a little town in the south of France called Montaillou, a tiny and beautiful place in the middle of nowhere, which in the early 14th century was a hotbed of Catharism. And the local bishop, a man named Jacques Fournier, decided to take the entire town into custody, about 200 people, and to question them painstakingly for two years. Fournier was interested in absolutely everything, what people ate and drank, local customs and superstitions, who was sleeping with whom, what they used as sexual aids. And Fournier vacuumed this information up indiscriminately, deciding how to use it later. He wrote everything down. And because he went on to become Pope Benedict XII, it all survived. And the, the great French historian, Emmanuel Leroy Lagerie, has written an account of Jacques Fournier and Montaigu called Montaigu, which is an extraordinary and wonderful book. So speaking of vacuuming information up indiscriminately, we have made some huge advance, advances in degree, but not in kind. Today, we're far from coming to terms with the information revolution that got its start in the Middle Ages and that has been propelled by new forms of national security. As I don't need to remind you, ordinary life in Britain today is monitored by a network of, I, I think, somewhere in the order of four million CCTV cameras. After the London bombings in 2005, the authorities were able to put together a video montage of one of the bombers' cars as it drove all the way from Leeds to London. Around the world, electronic surveillance and record-keeping automatically monitor billions of people. Databases can be linked and cross-referenced in a way that Bernard Gee could only envy. A third tool adopted by the Inquisition goes by the name training. If you want an institution to last for a long time, you have to train a self-perpetuating cadre of professionals. You have to create what today we'd call a bureaucracy. The Middle Ages was very big on training manuals. You know, there are manuals for hearing confessions. There are manuals to teach you how to become a Dominican priest. There are manuals for princes on their way to becoming kings. Here's one of the most influential manuals ever written. It's the Directorium Inquisitorum by a man named Nicholas Eimerich. This is a how-to book for inquisitors. Among other things, 
It offers practical advice on how to ask questions of people called up on charges, an interrogator's handbook. It's the direct ancestor of this book, which is part of the US Army Field Manual. And I use that word direct advisedly. Back in 2005, a government group, a US government group called the Intelligence Science Board issued a summary report on intelligence gathering techniques, noting in the, preface, in the preface that modern knowledge was prefigured by the work of Nicholas Eimerich. Take a look at Eimerich's book in the Army Field Manual, put them side by side, and the resemblances are just uncanny. Faced with an unforthcoming prisoner, Eimerich advises the Inquisitor to sit with a large stack of documents in front of him, which he should appear to consult as he asks questions or listens to answers, periodically looking up from the pages as if they contradict the testimony and saying, it is clear to me that you are hiding the truth. The Army Manual suggests a technique called the file and dossier approach. Quote, the human intelligence collector prepares a dossier containing all available information concerning the source or his organization. The information is carefully arranged within a file to give the illusion that it contains more data than is actually there. It is effective if the intelligence collector is reviewing the dossier when the source enters the room." Unquote. Interrogation leads inevitably to a fourth modern tool, torture which in turn leads ultimately to this place, Guantanamo. In one sense, torture isn't new at all. It's as old as humanity. But in the Middle Ages, it starts to become systematic, part of the legal system, something that can be justified philosophically and theologically. There's a long history here, and the story it tells is the development of a very modern sensibility though we almost never see it that way and perhaps prefer not to. A thousand years ago, the form of justice widely used in Europe was trial by ordeal, in which God himself was called upon to decide matters of guilt and innocence. What better proof could there be? It was all very primitive. Then came the medieval revolution in jurisprudence and the idea that issues of guilt and innocence could be placed in human hands, an obvious step forward. But without God, what was the standard of proof? Well, it was thought a confession would be good. But sometimes people don't confess. What then? And the door suddenly is open to torture. In 1252, the Pope issued a bull which allowed inquisitors to use torture in their work. The bull was called Ad, Ab uh, Ad Abolendum. And it's the medieval equivalent of the so-called Bybee mem memos which were produced by the American Justice Department laying out the grounds for torture that the Bush administration attempted to rely on. This is Camp X-Ray. It got its name because you can see through the cages. And it's where the first detainees were held in 2002, the year when the US government was formulating its torture policies. We know now what the medieval inquisitors understood and the American interrogators soon discovered for themselves, that it's hard to keep torture under control. Each small extra turn of the screw offers the promise of some small extra piece of information. There are always ways to justify it. The medieval inquisitors were technically limited to one session of torture per person, 
but they got around it by arguing that a second session and a third session and a fourth were actually just continuances of the first. Here's a memo signed off on by Donald Rumsfeld setting out the interrogation techniques allowed at Guantanamo and already he's taking issue with the constraints. He writes there, I stand for eight to ten hours a day. Why is standing limited to four hours? The Guantanamo interrogators have described how they were pressured to adopt more and more severe methods, even using techniques they'd seen on the television program 24. The Inquisition used three main forms of torture. One is the rack, the only one of the three that the U.S. seems not to have used in the war on terror. The second was suspension, known as the garucha or strapado to the Inquisition. A version of it was used on Senator John McCain by the North Vietnamese. That's why he can't raise his arms above his shoulders. One Guantanamo detainee is known to have died as a result of this method from asphyxiation. The third technique was waterboarding, known as the toka for the cloth that covers the face on which water is poured. This has been widely used in modern times. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was waterboarded 183 times, though defenders of the practice take issue with that number. They say 183 was simply the number of pores, but that there were in fact only five sessions. That exculpatory word continuance comes to mind. And by the way, the Inquisition took it for granted that waterboarding is torture. The Bush administration maintained to the end that it is not. The fifth and last modern tool I'll mention here is censorship. Burning books is nothing new. You know, there are references to such acts in the Bible. But making the control or destruction of information part of an organized and ongoing effort was a task pioneered by the Inquisition. From the church's point of view, it was made necessary by the printing press and the great freedom it unleashed. At the Inquisition archives in Rome one day, I came across this curious display, which looks like something you'd see on Antiques Roadshow. The tops are hinged, and each box is filled with hundreds of cards. What's this, I asked the archivist who was with me. And he closed the lid and said, that's the index of forbidden books. During my Catholic childhood, condemnation by the index was a kind of you know, five-star recommendation. Uh, although you know, anyone who spent the night with a flashlight under the covers reading Descartes and Hobbes was generally disappointed. <laughs> but the work of the index of forbidden book, although it was porous and sometimes you know, um, uh, idiotic, was also very effective. Agents of the Vatican scoured publishers and libraries. They kept watch at ports. They took books already published and crossed out offending passages. For instance, trying to find every use of the offensive word coitus and replacing it with the more demure word copula. If only the Inquisition had the tools we have now. We've all heard of China's great firewall. Here's just one small part of a list of terms, and it's a very long list that you'll be blocked from searching on the web in China. In the United States, we still have book burn burnings and attempts to pull books from libraries, but the real action 
in the U.S. and elsewhere is really on the Internet. The Internet gets applause for sparking the Arab Spring, but let's not forget that Egypt was able to shut the entire Internet down, or that Iran monitors Twitter and Facebook to gather up names of dissidents. New software enables specific content to be pulled off distant uh, computers at the stroke of a keyboard. Not long ago, Amazon made news when it realized it had made available the wrong electronic editions of two books and remotely pulled them from everyone's Kindle. The books were Animal Farm and 1984. So let me come back now to Bernard Gee in his book of sentences. We have better tools for an inquisition, if somebody wants one, than ever before. Personally, I'm not confident that there's a way of controlling any of these tools. Bureaucracies take on lives of their own. Look at what has happened to the American intelligence apparatus, which now, according to an investigative report in the Washington Post, comprises scores of agencies and nearly 2,000 corporations. Surveillance and censorship te technology you can buy off the shelf. But there remains the matter of moral certainty, which is the precipitating uh, event. It's that desire to impose your, your beliefs on others, to lay down rules about what kinds of ideas or what kinds of people are acceptable. When you hear about fatwas and great firewalls, or listen to political debates about whether the United States is or ought to be a Christian nation, you can ask yourself whether moral certainty is really a thing of the past. When I was looking through Bernard Gee's manuscript at the British Library, I noticed several pages glued into the front. It was a series of letters from the late 17th century describing how the book had come into the possession of the British Library in the first place. It had been discovered in Montpellier by a traveling Englishman who arranged to have it lent to the great Dutch historian of the Inquisition, Philip von Limborg. Limborg used the manuscript in his work, even published the entire thing as an appendix. And then a buyer was found who paid off the original owner and sent the manuscript to England, where it has been ever since. The traveling Englishman was this man, the philosopher John Locke. He was in the midst of writing his famous essay on tolerance, in which he argued that attempting to impose belief was not only wrong in principle, who among us knows the ultimate truth, but also wrong as a practical matter. People won't agree with you even if you're right, and the result will be strife and bloodshed. Locke represented a new intellectual tradition, and it was this tradition, slowly gathering acceptance, that really brought the old Inquisition to an end. We sometimes think that ideas don't have much power. We can't see them, they are easy to ignore, but they are among the most powerful forces of all. Ideas that seemed preposterous only a few generations ago, that all people are equal, that people have the right to self-determination, are now entrenched. So the thought I would leave you with this evening is simply the urgency of tolerance, an embattled ideal even in liberal democracies, 
an invisible and fragile thing, but the best defense that we have. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'd certainly be happy to take any <coughs> yes, questions Cal people Calvin may have. Yes, happy to answer questions. We can take questions for the next, oh, certainly the next half hour. So if any of you have any questions you'd like to ask, think about them. Uh, could I just start by, uh, well, first of all, congratulating you on a very fluent and absolutely convincing uh, account of the Inquisition and its uh, effects on the modern world. Um, you said towards the end that after you mentioned John Locke, that it was this seepage of uh, an idea of tolerance that eventually undermined the, the Inquisition. But uh, have you discovered any kind of process in the, the Vatican archives or in published sources which uh, show how the, the papacy may have slowly been affected by that idea of tolerance? Or is it just that, you know, given the, the papacy's being undermined by Italian unification or other factors in the imperial world, is this a practical set of circumstances that bring the Inquisition to an end, or is there a, uh, a traceable uh, ideological uh, process that you can actually see in documents whereby the church actually comes to a different point of view? I, I mean, I'd, I don't think the papacy is immune to the idea of tolerance, but it has a pretty robust defense mechanism. Um, and I don't, I don't believe that, uh, that you see you know, inroads of the idea of tolerance in the Vatican the way that you do in secular governments. You can point, you can point to certain developments like the Second Vatican Council, um, you know, which was for the church a revolutionary uh, mom moment. I'm sorry. And very late on. And very yes, very late. And uh, it was during it was during the Second Vatican Council that the Index of Forbidden Books was finally abolished. So that was 1966, 400 years after its after its um, uh, founding. Um, I think if you look at the the papacy today, uh, it is a it is a very authoritarian uh, institution. Uh, even after the the demise of the papal states. And you know the, the loss of any temporal power by the by the Pope. Uh, intellectually, it was uh, highly retrograde. The um, you know, many of you may have heard of the you know, the so-called modernist controversy. Its ground zero was was in many ways here in in England. And um, you know this was this was a movement within the church that actually didn't even didn't call itself by that name that was the name used by its critics to to label it and you know in fact demonize it which was trying to be open to the ideas of things like um, science uh, evolution modern philosophy uh, different governmental structures within within the church and that was condemned by Pope Pius X as a um, as a heresy now of course the larger story of what happens in the church is, is that the modernists more or less won. Uh, the church is, is, is animated much more by the people who are its members than people tend to, to think. Uh, in the long run, the hierarchy is not as important as the people who are, happen to be Catholics, but the, the lag time you know, is centuries, unfortunately. Yes, sir. 
So perhaps if people want to ask a question, you should wait till someone comes with a microphone. Sorry. You've got uh, one now. You mentioned Cristobal Columbus seeing the ships living with Jews yes. in 1492. Yes. Why the Inquisition focus on the Jews so much? Why they persecute them? Why, why, yes, what was the reason? There had to be a reason. Thank you. Yes, so the basic question is why was, the, why was the, this focus by the Inquisition on, on Jews? Um, you know, as you can imagine, this is one of the, the central um, topics of modern historians answering that question. And as you would also imagine, there are many different answers to it, some combination of which is undoubtedly the truth. Uh, one answer goes to simply what the Catholic Church had taught about Jews for a long period of time. There's, there's, an, there's an anti-Semitic strain that is embodied in the very Gospels, you know, Jews as the killers of, of, of Christ. And there's a theological, theological tradition that emerges from that that runs from the very beginning through the Middle Ages and up to the present. And it's only been within the last, really the last couple of decades that the church has, to some extent, tried to face this, apologize for it um, in not very satisfactory ways. So that's one part of the answer. Another part of the answer is probably uh, conditions unique to Spain. Uh, there were more Jews in Spain than really any other European country at that time. Um, there, uh, th there was a concentration of Jews in professions um, and in the intellectual trades. Uh, they were very, very prominent, and therefore there, there likely was an element of, of jealousy. Um, and in terrible economic times, which Spain endured in the you know, late 14th and, and 15th century, some of that anger and jealousy would be directed at people who were unlike other people. So those would be, those would be some of the reasons. And then Ferdinand and Isabella themselves were very interested in unifying the country, you know, expelling impurities, making Spain a, you know, a kind of coherent uh, homogenous, unified state, which probably entered into the picture as well. Those are some of the those are some of the elements that people will 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 point to. Um, but you know, the same thing happened in other countries too. Um, England expelled um, uh, the Jews even earlier than Spain did, and um, and so did France. Yes, ma'am. Monica Berber. What do you think about uh, the methods used by, uh, which seem to me inquisitorial, used by uh, the organization called Mafia, by Richard Dawkins, the, the, the opposite, fighting religion? And then. Would, uh, the, the methods used by. You know by Richard Rich? Dawkins? You, yes, I know Richard Dawkins. Yes. Yeah. Well, his organization is called Mafia, the, um, the anagram. It reads as Mafia. And they seem to sometimes be using the same techniques as the inquisitors. You mean Dawkins? You mean Dawkins has been using? Yeah. So I'm, I'm not aware of a few things that he's done. Yeah. And well, another I'm thing is um, about the um, mind control experiments conducted by CIA. Uh, 
And so security services. I'm, I'm not aware, I don't, I don't have any knowledge of the specific things that you're referring to with, with Richard Dawkins, but let me just step back and make a larger, larger point, um, uh, which relates to that. One, one of the uh, arguments that I make in my book is that it's a mistake to think of inquisitorial um, impulses as something that is limited to religion, because it is not. Um, if you just look at the history of the 20th century, you'll find many examples of these same impulses using you know, advanced forms of the tools that I'm describing from the Middle Ages. Uh, this is an impulse that can arise anywhere, uh, religious uh, or secular. Uh, it can arise in small groups of people. Uh, in the age of the Internet, when you have, when you have people uh, who are able to wield enormous amounts of power and yet are not themselves a corporation or a government. Um, you may even at some point be able to see inquisitorial activity you know, waged by you know, a small guerrilla group. So um, even though the, you know, the Catholic Church is the, is the institution that created what we call the Inquisition um, and deservedly has uh, taken the, the blame and the obloquy for that, uh, it shouldn't blind us to the fact that these impulses arise everywhere. Yes, sir. Hello. Um, a couple of questions about you know the relationship between the Inquisition and, and the the kings who are in charge of who are running you know the countries. Did, did the Inquisition have to get specific legal authority to to operate from from the kings, or did they kind of naturally have this? in some way, and was there some sort of quid pro quo for being granted that, that, you know, the popes might agree to something? Yes. The, um, you know, so the question has to do with um, the relationship between the Inquisition and the secular powers. Now, in a place like Spain, it was relatively easy because the Inquisition was, was part of the secular, the secular government in effect. Um, but, in, but earlier in the, in, the, in the Middle Ages, it was different, and there was no single way of doing business. Um, but the Inquisition often needed the help of the secular power, and they could not take it for granted. It was not as if, you know, when the Inquisition arrived, the local secular power was automatically at its disposal. Sometimes it was the opposite. Sometimes uh, the local power, in fact, was in cahoots with the, with the heretics. And, um, but to give, you, to give a very specific example, in southern France, when the uh, Inquisition was trying to root out the, uh, the Cathars. Uh, in effect, uh, the church made a deal with the kings of France, and there was a quid pro quo. The quid pro quo was southern France, which was not at the time um, you know, really part of the kingdom of, of, um, of France. And, um, uh, and the French king sent troops. Those were his troops that surrounded Montségur, and um, uh, and the you know this was what is known as the Albigensian uh, uh, Crusade and its subsequent events, and Catharism was you know d destroyed, and, um, and and when you go to the Riviera now, it's it's part of metropolitan France. Yes, sir. Even though the Inquisition ended in 18, 
1506, I think I'm right in saying in Spain, it seems to me that the institutions and ideas of Inquisition have cast a long pole over the Spanish Rite and the Catholic Church for at least a century, even a century and a half after that. Would you care to say something about this, this, this um, connection between span mo relatively modern Spanish Catholicism, such as in the 1930s, and the institution of the idea of repression? Well, it, it, should, not, it should not be surprising that an institution like the, like the Inquisition, especially one in a country like Spain where it was, where it was bound up with the, with the actual government for a period of, of centuries, that, that the lingering impact would be, would be profound. Um, and, uh, and, and I think, I think you know, students of Spain acknowledge that fact ex explicitly. Uh, some of those uh, modern historians who, um, who are students of the Inquisition um, and who grew up in Spain or in Portugal um, have, in, have in part been motivated by the circumstances um, of their own, you know, their childhoods, their adolescence, um, knowing the kind of country that they grew up in, knowing uh, you know how difficult it was for for those societies um, to shake off a lot of the heritage, and and you do see a, I think a correspondence between the personal experience of those historians and the fact that they were drawn to write about the Inquisition in the in the first place. Question. Um, next. Um, I was just wondering, um, it's not something that you hear about in the history of the UK. I don't know how much you know about this, whether it, it just doesn't seem to feature strongly in the history of the UK, Inquisition. Is that, is it, was it really not as big a deal as it was in very Catholic countries because it was a different religious orientation to, say, Spain and Italy? Or did it occur and it just wasn't as big, big news? That's, that's a great question. I know in, in the United States there are some things that don't show up in the, in the history books are not there, not because they didn't happen, but because people don't want to talk about them. But in this case, it's actually you know, probably good, good news. There, there wasn't, the, the Inquisition never took, took hold here um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, one is simply that, um, and I, I'm just trying to give you the, the views of people who've studied this you know, very, very closely. Um, one is that the, the common law tradition in England was you know, trial by jury, things like that, was so entrenched that the obstacles for a foreign judicial body taking root were, were very strong. Uh, and another um, it was simply that the, I mean, it's related, but uh, uh, among the monarchs, just the fear of having an extraterritorial body operating an independent regime uh, in England was immense. Uh, there were a couple of occasions when inquisitors did try to do um, their, their business in England. Um, one of them was when the, the Knights Templar were being suppressed and the, uh, uh, the Inquisition in France sent inquisitors over to England to um, interrogate some people and, and they, they left unsatisfied claiming that they couldn't find Torturers of sufficient caliber in uh, in England, a um, a lack that would be remedied before long. But um, 
And of course, when the, when, um, the English tried Joan of Arc, they tried her with a kind of simulacrum of an inquisitional procedure. But it didn't really, didn't really happen here. Of course, subsequently, in, um, you know, after Henry VIII, there would be many other activities that would have an inquisitorial cast uh, to them, but not the, not the Inquisition per se. Ma'am? I'm just wondering whether we could extend our understanding of the Inquisition in the States vis-a-vis -vis the Patriot Act and the, you know, the whole uh, sort of creation of the um, what is called um, the, oh, the collective sort of uh, agencies, security agencies. Homeland Security. Exactly. Yep. I mean, could that be sort of a modern interpretation of uh, So the question has to do it further. <laughs> and the other bit would be um, bypassing Inquisition altogether and just going for killing as they're doing with the drones. Another way of sort of dealing or bypassing it. So the question has to do with um, uh, various measures in the United States um, that grew out of fear, fear in the wake of 9-11 and dealing with terrorism and exemplified, for instance, by the Patriot Act. Um, the, the question has to do with those and whether I think of those, uh, those kinds of um, um, legislative acts as in line with some of the inquisitorial um, uh, developments that I've been speaking about, and I do. And I, I think about them this way um, for this reason. You know, one, of the, one of the topics of my book is bureaucracy. Uh, bureaucracy is a powerful and necessary thing. It is what makes you know, an institution like this run. It is what makes airports and everything else in our civilization run. And at the same time, uh, bureaucracies, well, we've all had encounters with bureaucracy. We know how we feel about them. And, and one of the um, characteristics of bureaucracies is that they tend to expand. They tend to be self-perpetuating. They tend to be almost on cruise control. And they tend not to be responsive to the wishes of actual, uh, actual people. Now, when you, when you harness those characteristics of a bureaucracy, to, um, to legislative remedies that are slowly, perhaps with some justification or apparent justification, but that are slowly putting restriction after restriction on, on your freedom or cutting corners in terms of you know, constitutional rights. Um, that's a very dangerous situation because you're, you're, you're in effect embedding uh, these restrictions and these limitations on your rights in an institution over which you seem to have no power. And, uh, and I do see this happening in the United States, and it's, um, I was reading about the Green Paper here in, in, in Britain about judicial procedure. Um, it seems to be happening here to an extent, where in response to fear, um, there are you know, adjustments made in the way in which justice is done. And it involves you know, what, ha what, what rights do people have if they're arrested? Um, what corners can prosecutors cut when they want to uh, put someone on trial? What kinds of information does the government have to, have to divulge? 
And, you know, when you think back on the accumulation of these measures over time, it never seems to be the case that these measures are rolled back. You know, people don't step forward and say, you know what, the emergency's gone, let's get rid of all of these measures, these so-called temporary emergency measures. That kind of doesn't happen. What happens is that there's a, there's a slow accretion of, of, of new restrictions and limitations. Um, that's why I fear what has happened as a result of things like the USA Patriot Act and then the recent Defense Authoriza uh, Reauthorization Act that President Obama signed a month ago um, over his own objections because he, he disliked so much of, of what was in it. And um, you just can't, it's like a ratchet. It turns only in one direction. You can't turn it the other way. So thank you for that, that question. Were the witch burnings related to the Inquisition? Not as an organization, they happened in Northern Europe. And I want to ask something else, and this is just something I've read. I'm not suggesting I agree with it. But I've come across the idea that some of the methods and techniques and thinking of modern science arising in Northern Europe were related to methods of witch trials and witch burnings. There was, a, is of course, the collecting of information and such like. And I think this might have come from Foucault, I'm not sure. But, well, there's uh, a reliable source. <laughs> <laughs> I've certain, certainly a lot of early scientists use the language of interrogating nature to torture her secrets out of her and uh, we shall bind nature to us and turn her into us. Well, let me answer the first part of the question because I don't know the answer ah. to the second part. And the, the first part of the question had to do with witch burnings. And um, yes, the, uh, the, the Inquisition did have its eye on um, which is uh, up to a point. It was never a prime focus. And it also had its eye on, on people who were superstitious and you know, adhered to various folk traditions, you know, where peasants would go out in the, at midnight and do, do you know, dance and do other things that just went back centuries. Um, and there were people who were um, brought before Inquisition tribunals for doing such things, and some of them were um, were put to death for doing such things. There was a um, uh, there's a famous book by a great historian named Carlo Ginzburg called The Cheese and the Worms, which is based on Inquisition documents from northern Italy, and it's exactly about this kind of a case. He wasn't a witch, but he would or, or a wizard or any he had no relation really to that side of things. But he was a you know, he was a miller and he was a peasant and his own personal belief system was all bound up with, um, with folkways of northern Italy that just had no relationship to the church. They were part of something else. And he was a very entertaining uh, man and he talked too much. And as a result, he um, was called before the Inquisition which interrogated him you know, for, um, well, on two different occasions. Um, and fortunately, not for him, but for us, 
all of these transcripts survived, and Carlo Ginzburg was able to recreate the personal cosmology of this of this peasant. Um, but he was burned at the stake in 1599. But it's a terrific it's a terrific book if you uh, have the chance, and, and it answers some of the questions that you have. I think there was a question here. Did you have a question? Uh, hello, I just was wondering if you support the opinion that governments sometimes uh, might use um, this inquisition or the situation, for example, of, um, uh, of emergency as an excuse to control the populations in the past and right now. Do you support this opinion? I, I think it's undeniable that that sometimes happens. You know, it's a classic, it's a, it is a classic um, uh, technique that some governments use, you know, to create an emergency to um, uh, to stoke fear in order to achieve some other other end. Um, but I will say that in in democracies like the ones that we live in, that like the one here, like the one where I come from, um, although that sort of thing happens, that does not worry me as much as the slow, almost imperceptible change that occurs without, you know, revolutionary change um, can occur with a sudden, you know, burst of revolutionary fervor or it, can, or it can occur because something is changing by small amounts that nobody notices over long periods of time. And it's that latter uh, dynamic that worries me most where you have um, where you have uh, tiny incremental adjustments being made in, in laws or in the capability of surveillance, things like that, where we're not necessarily alert to it while it's happening because it's happening too slowly, um, but only from the perspective of time. You know, looking back from a century from now, and when you can look at it speeded up, that you begin to see what the overall impact of this is. That's the great advantage of looking at the Inquisition in the first place, because you can see it from the perspective of time, and things that are hard to notice year by year or decade by decade emerge much more clearly. Right there. Thank you. Um, do you think the framers of the Constitution anticipated the kind of gradual erosion of freedom that you've, you've discussed here this evening? Yes, I do. Uh, I think it was, it, it is, the fear of that gradual erosion is built into that document. The, um, I'm not going to give you a long tutorial on the, on the American Constitution, but, I, but let me just say a, a few things. The, the people who put that document together were very fearful of power, and they, and they were very fearful of a single idea monopolizing all ideas. And they constructed the document in such a way so that there would not be power concentrated in any one part of the government. Uh, and they also, and, and they did so partly to ensure that no single idea, whether, whether imposed by a tyrant or by the masses of people, the people as the tyrant, um, 
that it would be difficult for either of those things to come to pass. It is a deeply pessimistic document, which is why I like it. And uh, in the United States today, you will hear a lot of people talking very triumphantly about the Constitution as if, you know, this is the greatest thing that humanity ever achieved in the form of self-government. But I don't think they're looking at the document closely because to me what it says is this is a document made for actual human beings who are going to screw up if you give them half a chance. And we are going to try to put as many guardrails and boundaries and uh, dead ends and cul-de-sacs in here as possible so that if that starts to happen there is some kind of corrective. And the, to, to me, the U.S. Constitution is the quintessential, uh, it is the antithetical inquisition, it is the anti-inquisition uh, document. Um, what does fear me, though, is that many of the provisions of the, of the Constitution are kind of out of whack at this point. And I'll just give you one example of something that virtually in my lifetime has changed uh, enormously, and that is the war powers of the president. You know, the war powers of the president. You know, this was a, this, it used to be, it is written in the document that the president can wage war with, with the consent of Congress. Congress has to declare war. The last war declared by Congress was World War II. Um, and we have, since that period of time, how, on how many occasions sent troops abroad? 25, 30? and waged huge wars like Korea, Vietnam, uh, Iraq twice. Um, so here's a case where now one large section of the Constitution is effectively a dead letter, and it has happened in the course of 50 years. So I applaud the Constitution, but it is not immune to um, you know, the kinds of erosion um, as I've just described. Can you speak a little bit to the idea of heresy? Because the, the targets of the Inquisition were generally considered heretics. They didn't believe in um, the church's doctrine. But what about people today who are being targeted by the methods and, and how it's been modernized? And would you still call them heretics or perhaps it's of a, a more civic nature, nationalism or, or something? Are you, are you referring to relig religious heretics in the church or... Yes, yeah, the, the idea that the Cathars were heretics to the, the Catholic doctrine um, and so on Protestants, the Jews, etc. Um, yeah. Um, you know, this, it's a intri very intriguing question when you, when you talk about heresy versus orthodoxy because it's all in the definition. And the person who is doing the defining has an enormous power to say who is on the outside and who is on the inside. And this is, this is part of the reason why you have an inquisition in the first place is, is that defining power. It's another modern trait. You know, in, um, in an earlier part of the Middle Ages when, when, when church law and other kinds of law were not as sophisticated or as evolved, deciding who was, you know, who was believing the right things about the church, you know, about church doctrine, it wasn't all written down, it was harder to say. But as it becomes more sophisticated, it becomes easier to say, oh, well, you have crossed the red line here. You must, you know, you're a heretic because you've said this, this and that. 
And it's, um, and that's, you know, that's not the only reason, but it's one reason why there is a surge in heresy. It's because there's a harder, more rigid definition that comes into play. But you see the same kind of thing in our own time, not in the realm of religion, but just thinking of um, the people that the people that you want to be associated with or not want to be associated with. When you, um, you know, in the 1950s, the U.S. government used to do absurd things like, how do you recognize a communist? And they would put out pamphlets saying, well, they have long hair and they play the guitar and they have headbands. And I know that's an absurd example, but it just shows you that that kind of thinking takes root in many other ways. Or um, there was a... uh, a couple of years ago, a student from uh, American University student was stopped and searched by at the airport by, and and held because he had an Arabic dictionary in his knapsack, and that was because you know some bureaucratic functionary was told you know the the people that we want to watch out for you know they speak Arabic, and um, but in a more serious note, uh, in the United States, there was a big debate uh, about 18 months ago over something called birthright citizenship. Birthright citizenship is something we take for granted, which is if you're born in a place, you're a citizen of that place. No one has questioned this in 200 years of, of American life. But because so many um, children are being born to illegal immigrants in the United States, now there is uh, a movement to change the definition of who is an American and who is, who is not. And um, so in some ways, I think this speaks to the notion of you know, heresy as a, as a definitional problem, but it's not just a religious issue. I think there was a question over here. The question of torture you mentioned earlier, it has happened outside Inquisition and various countries. During this period, the government in, in question never, never condemned these people. They, they accepted whatever they, they tortured. They, they knew about it. Never, never, nothing had been done against people using torture. Um, could you try the question again? I didn't get the essential part of that question. This question of torture happened outside the Inquisition. It always had yes. happened. The government of these countries never did anything to stop it. They, they seem to condone and accept the whatever they done. Nothing was mentioned about it. I think the, the adoption of, of torture by governments, uh, certainly in the last, and, I, and I'll, I'll speak primarily about the U.S. government, in the, in the last 10 years, um, a, a practice which President Obama has, I think, stopped, but one never really knows. But I think it really springs from the same impetus um, that propelled it in Inquisition times, and that was partly fear and partly the, um, the need for certain kinds of information, and to justify it, the belief that you were engaged in an enterprise that was so important that it overrode all other considerations of morality. And the, uh, the inquisitors were, were completely clear on that point. They knew if you just sat them down and said, is what you're doing 
under ordinary circumstances, would that be wrong? Yes, of course that would be wrong. Um, but their response was, these are not ordinary circumstances. Something else is going on in the world. We need to engage with it and defeat it. And the task of defeating it is so much more important than these petty considerations of principle and morality that would otherwise concern us that we're going to put them aside and we're, um, we're going to proceed uh, and that will be our justification. And that, I believe, was exactly the motivation by those who, um, who implemented a, a regime of torture uh, in the United States, um, just as it was for um, you know, the inquisitors. Yes, sir. Um, I want to return a little bit to the, the question of bureaucracy. And um, I think it's really easy to often find examples of how wrong bureaucracy goes and how maybe uh, bureaucracy might inherently be, be wrong. But how do you look at um, certain, I mean, bureaucracies were adopted by governments in, and people influenced by enlightenment thinking to sort of establish the rule of law to protect uh, citizens from the whims of rulers. Uh, that on one hand, and also more than that, that bureaucracies can even sometimes be catalysts for change. Um, so you sort of see, how do you, um, how do you look at the, the competing influences of, of Enlightenment thinking and, and uh, the Inquisition and sort of work through that? So, um, you know, I, as I did just a few moments ago, I acknowledged the, you know, the progressive aspect of, of bureaucracies. You know, they, you know, clearly they, they make extraordinary things possible and they do enormous amounts of good. And the, um, uh, the, the notion of the Enlightenment as, uh, I mean, the notion of bureaucracy as the Enlightenment saw it, um, you know, was a reaction to the, you know, the very personal, even whimsical rule of, um, you know, of Excuse me, of you know, feudal rulers or um, you know, closed elites and so on, um, and yet it is itself something to to beware of. When you go back and you read in the say the late 18th century, some of the theorists of the French Revolution, for instance, when they talk about bureaucracy, and they often use, as I'm sure you know, these metaphors of a machine, uh, this perfectly functioning machine. Um, where every human being has a little place and people are are interchangeable, um, but the machine goes on and and on. Um, there's something. I mean, uh, I, I don't think I'm looking for trouble when I look at metaphors like that, and I think, um, is there is there a hint of something totalitarian looming in the future when you see those metaphors? Um, so. Um, and then the, the fact remains, when it comes to the Inquisition, you know, whether bureaucracy is, is on balance good or on balance um, bad, it is actually necessary to, just to keep anything going, whether that thing is good or bad. And, and my point about bureaucracy is not that it's inherently good or inherently evil, but that it is, in fact, inherently necessary if you're going to invent a regime of intolerance and then sustain it over, over centuries. 
Uh, are there any other questions? Uh, we'll need to take one more. We're reaching the end of our time. You, you've had one before, but since no one else is competing with you. Oh, well, yes, the, you've got competition. Uh, how did that uh, transcript uh, that you read at the British Library, I think it was, was Guy, make its way there? Was, I don't know if it was part of the George III's collection, or how, how did it get into, into Great Britain? And did the Catholic Church over the years, centuries, try to restrict uh, people viewing these documents uh, that you know of? Sure. The, um, the Bernard Guy uh, document made its way, this is the one that was found by John Locke in the south of France. and. Um, and he sent it to this historian in the Netherlands, and then, and, uh, and then they, they, they found a buyer for it who bought it, who bought it from the repository in the south of France, paid them off, took the manuscript, brought it over, gave it to the, the British libraries. I mean, that's a, that's a fairly, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful and yet peculiar story. But the, the larger question about did the church try to uh, prevent people from looking at these documents, well, yeah. Um, and it, it was only in 1998 that the, um, the Vatican opened up its own archives, its own Inquisition archives. They're in that palazzo, and they, they, uh, they're, they're voluminous. Uh, in the early uh, 1800s, Napoleon took, when, when he occupied Italy, he, uh, he took virtually all the Vatican archives and brought them to Paris. He wanted to create this pan-European archive, you know, the archi Archivo de Tutti Archivi. And, um, uh, and no sooner had he gotten the Vatican archives to Paris than he fell from power. And this plan now had to go on, on rewind. And uh, the, the Vatican and, and other governments didn't have the money to, um, to bring all the documents back. And uh, the Vatican recognized that this was, in fact, an opportunity. Because if they couldn't get all the documents back, you know, maybe, maybe it would be a great idea to destroy a lot of these. Um, and as a result, they, they sold off huge, a huge volume of, of uh, Inquisition documents to be, to be turned into cardboard. Um, or they sold it to, to butcher shops and delicatessens to, to, you know, to wrap cheese in. And, um, and actually, some manuscripts have survived this way. And, um, and then, as usual, you know, there were these um, you know, wealthy, anti-clerical idiot savants in places like England who assiduously bought up you know, bits of wrapping paper, and those became parts of collections. Trinity College Dublin has a big collection of stuff that somehow made it, was, was separated from the Napoleonic trove. So about a third of the documents were actually lost in that process, including most of the trials, most of the trial transcripts. But many of those survive in, in, in you know, Naples or Modena or Bologna or Venice, places like, like that. And all of those archives, although they were closed, but once the reunification of Italy happened, you know, over time those were opened up and became accessible to scholars. But yeah, the Vatican is not an open book. Um, and um, but it's actually the archives are now there. That whole regime is being run very professionally to a high scholarly standard, um, and I have to take my hat off to them. They're they're doing a great job.
So thank you very much. It's been great to be with you this evening. Well, Colin, let me thank you for uh, an excellent talk and for your tolerance and your wisdom in answering all these questions, which we've all enjoyed listening to. And uh, I hope some other occasion you'll have the opportunity to come back and give My another talk. Visit. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. And could I thank you for coming and for asking intelligent questions. Thank the stewards for helping out and helping to arrange all this uh, and hope that you'll come to future meetings. Thanks very much.